It's Tuesday, March 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The CDC has issued new guidelines for those who are fully vaccinated. The good news is that those people can now visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or social distancing. And if they are exposed to the virus, there's no need to quarantine or get tested if they show no symptoms. Lev Fasher, Washington correspondent at Stat News, joins us for the new rules for those that have gotten their vaccines. Next, we are seeing a rise in border crossings at the southern border. Some have blamed the policies from the Biden administration as the reason for encouraging the surge. But that's only a small part. There's been hurricanes in Honduras that have left people homeless, food shortages in Central America, and the pandemic has also been pushing people to the U.S. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios, joins us for why migrants are fleeing their homes once again. Finally, another tragic story of fraternity hazing gone wrong. 20-year-old Stone Foltz from Bowling Green State University has died after being given copious amounts of alcohol at a frat party. His family has decided to donate his organs. The fraternity Pi Kappa Alpha has been stripped of its status as a student organization, and an investigation is underway. Bethany Bruner, reporter at the Columbus Dispatch, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. CDC's new guidance also recommends that fully vaccinated people do not need quarantine or get tested following a known exposure to someone with COVID-19 as long as they are asymptomatic. Joining us now is Lev Basher, Washington correspondent at STAT. Thanks for joining us, Lev. Thanks for having me. This is the news we've been waiting for for some time now. The CDC has finally issued guidance on what fully vaccinated people can do in their normal lives. And thankfully, they said that if you're fully vaccinated, you can start gathering with other fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask and without needing to social distance. Now, the rules kind of vary all over depending on what it is. Really, the recommendations has to do mostly with the people that aren't vaccinated. That's how you really need to adjust what you are going to be doing. But Lev, tell us what the CDC said about fully vaccinated people. What the CDC said today is in many ways something that a lot of Americans probably had assumed already. The point of vaccines is to prevent people from getting sick and to prevent people from getting others sick. So presumably, if there's one person or even better, two people who've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, it's hard to see a problem with them hanging out together, spending time indoors, even doing things that for the past year we've all come to learn are dangerous, because it's just highly, highly unlikely that one could get the other sick. Since they're both vaccinated, it's highly unlikely that even if they did become sick, which does happen occasionally, that there would be serious complications, that someone would be hospitalized, or that they would die, of course. So the CDC has essentially said, if you're vaccinated, you can hang out indoors as long as the people you're hanging out with indoors are not particularly high risk, which is to say elderly or have underlying health conditions that could lead to complications if they did contract COVID. So essentially, the CDC is saying as long as one out of two households that are mixing is fully vaccinated, that's okay provided there aren't high-risk people. And of course, if two households are fully vaccinated, then go for it. Throw a party, have dinner, don't go too crazy. But (laughs) they're essentially saying that if everyone in a particular group is vaccinated, you can start doing some things that you you would consider normal and and you can start returning from the shell of of your pandemic-safe life. They still said to refrain from 
medium to large gatherings because, you know, the other people might not be vaccinated. And they said travel restrictions should still be in place. You shouldn't be traveling all over the place just yet. So on the one hand, the recommendations about large groupings, I think to a lot of public health officials still make sense because let's say you get 30 people together as of right now, it's, you know, March 2021, not much of America is vaccinated. The odds are that even if half the room is vaccinated, half the room won't be. And that means that in a group of 30, there are going to be 15 people who are mingling and, and spreading COVID. So they're just saying that don't get large groups together because at this point, it's unlikely that everyone in a large group would be vaccinated. Even if they are, there are still low levels of transmission and, and illness that take place in people who have been vaccinated. So essentially just a note of caution from the CDC for now, though, of course, one imagines that would change as more and more people in the country do get vaccinated. The travel thing is a little more interesting. The CDC didn't really articulate what the exact risk is right. of people who are fully vaccinated, for example, getting on a plane. It was literally one line in the guidance. It just said, at this time, we're not updating travel recommendations. I think it's largely about not giving the country as a whole the impression that things are already back to normal, because of course they aren't. That said, I think the CDC is going to be criticized here a little bit for maybe asking folks to do too much. After all, if they're saying you can go to a family friend's house and, and have a nice dinner together if, if everyone's vaccinated or if one of the households is vaccinated and the other is low risk, why not, if you're vaccinated, why not get on a train or an airplane and go see your grandkids in another state or, you know, go take the beach vacation that you've been waiting to take for, you know, several months throughout a, a pretty rough pandemic winter. So it's just a cautionary note. But yeah, they haven't really articulated exactly what the difference is risk-wise between, you know, these small gatherings of vaccinated people mm -hmm. versus vaccinated folks taking a vacation or, or traveling from state to state. This guidance is for people that are fully vaccinated, meaning you got to wait two weeks after your second shot if you have Pfizer and Moderna and two weeks after the single shot of Johnson & Johnson. But the numbers are kind of all over the place. They're not as accurate as we want them to be. The Washington Post has a tracker that says 60 million people have at least one dose so far. I think in your article, you mentioned about 31 million Americans are fully vaccinated. So there's still a little bit of time before we can ease these restrictions. And, and I think you mentioned in the article the notion of vaccine euphoria, meaning as more people are getting it, they think they can just start doing whatever they want. I personally am on the younger side. I don't have an underlying health condition, so I'm not vaccinated and I probably won't be for a while. But I think the guidance is that for people like me, you shouldn't assume just because a lot of elderly people, a lot of people with an underlying health condition, a lot of people in a high risk job that puts them in face to face contact with a lot of other people just because they're vaccinated doesn't mean that someone in my situation can go to a party, should be going to movies indoors, should be eating all the time in restaurants that aren't well ventilated or don't have distancing measures in place. So it's just a cautionary message to the entire country that yes, we're doing well on the vaccine rollout. It's really accelerated in the last couple months. And a lot of high-risk people are immunized at this point. But, you know, just hold off a little longer because there's a danger in assuming that the worst is over. Everyone kind of lets out a sigh of relief. Everyone invites their friends over. And, and we see yet another wave of COVID. So that's the fear of vaccine euphoria. And the message from Biden administration officials in particular has been just hold on a couple more weeks, a couple more months, and hopefully in that span of time, we'll be at a 
place where so much of the country is vaccinated, so much of the country has some degree of immunity from COVID, that case rates actually will be down. And collectively over the summer, we can go back to our normal lives at least a little bit. Lev Fasher, Washington correspondent at STAT. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A message to those individuals who are thinking of coming uh, to our border. They need they need to wait. Joining us now is Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. President Biden is undergoing kind of this budding crisis right now when it comes to immigration. We're seeing an influx of people crossing the Mexico border. Unaccompanied minors is a big part of it. There's a lot of push and pull factors that are causing people to come over here. But one of the main things and critics of the president are saying that his immigration policies are really just kind of basically opening the doors and people are getting that type of message. So, Steph, there's a lot to go through, a lot of different angles on this. What are we seeing right now? Why are we seeing an uptick in people crossing the border? That's obviously a very good question and one that a lot of people are trying to answer right now. And when it comes to migration flows, first of all, they are just really complex. And there are often multiple reasons for why we see people leaving certain countries and coming to the U.S. When you talk to people who really study migration patterns, they talk about push factors and pull factors. And push factors would be reasons why people are leaving their countries. And some of those things are famine and hurricanes in Central America that we've seen over the past few months. It's also gang violence, which has been an issue in some of the Northern Triangle countries for a long time, domestic abuse, these other issues that push people to leave. Poverty is another one. But there are also pull factors, including the new administration, which has had a seemingly more compassionate and welcoming tone when it comes to immigration as compared to the previous administration. What have we seen as far as changes so far with this administration compared to the Trump administration? I know there's been a couple changes here, but what have we seen? First of all, they're no longer using a public health order called Title 42 to expel children who cross the border without their parents. This was a tool that the Trump administration used that basically allowed them to super quickly deport children when they cross the border without going through the normal process, without having them go to the shelters and go through the asylum process. They could just quickly push them back across the border. So the Biden administration is no longer doing that for kids who come across the border without their parents. They also ended the remain in Mexico policy, which forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for their asylum hearings in the U.S. Those are really the two big ones, but they also did end agreements with Central American countries that allowed the U.S. to deport some asylum seekers, send them to certain Central American countries. The administration has also instructed certain facilities to lift the capacity restrictions that were enacted because of coronavirus, freeing up more beds. Yeah, we're seeing the Biden administration take many big, important steps to create more space for these minors who are crossing the border. And, you know, the steps that they've taken are significant. They're steps that have been taken in the past when we've had surges of children coming across the border, such as in 2019 and 2014. And as you pointed out, first of all, they've, start, they've started up these overflow facilities in certain areas of the country to create more space, but they are also now moving to change their coronavirus protocols to allow more children in their shelters. Because up until now, the coronavirus protocols had limited their bed capacity and it cut it in about half. 
One of the things you mentioned in your article is about messaging. Migrants aren't always hearing what public officials are saying. They're hearing through their own networks, through what smugglers are telling them. We've heard the Biden administration a couple of times now put out this message that migrants should wait for them to reset up border practices, that they could create better systems at the border. So they keep saying, you know, don't come now. We're not saying don't come, but don't come now. And when I talked to various experts about this messaging, they just pointed out that that doesn't necessarily work. Migrants aren't waiting to time their departure, especially if they're fleeing something serious, if they're fleeing persecution in their home country or severe poverty. They're not necessarily going to wait. They don't really have time. They're also not necessarily going to hear that message. What they're going to hear is what they're going to hear through their own networks, through smugglers, we're going to try to take advantage of the change in administration to move people now. We're hearing former President Trump speak out about this also over the weekend. He sent out an email that was criticizing Joe Biden, saying the borders are open now. It's totally out of control, all due to the leadership of Joe Biden. You know, immigration, what makes it so difficult is that it is such a political issue. We've looked at some polling that shows that immigration really is one of, if not the most polarizing issues in the country. And so that makes it even more complicated. I think we're going to continue to see former President Trump use this issue, which he used in his 2016 campaign and throughout his presidency to rile up his base. And he's going to use the border numbers to rile up his base. But I would warn that that isn't necessarily the full picture. Things are very complicated. And sure, the Biden administration's approach has an impact, but it's not the only impact. And um, it will require a real serious look at why we're seeing these rise in numbers, and it's going to have to be a bipartisan solution. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What was supposed to be his big brother to the fraternity, um, uh, dropped him off. I'm not sure if there was other people there, but dropped him off at his apartment. Um, where at uh, some point, um, you know, shortly thereafter, um, Stone's roommates or friends found him, um, who then called 911. Joining us now is Bethany Bruner, reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. Thanks for joining us, Bethany. Thanks for having me. We have another tragic story, unfortunately, about hazing rituals and college and fraternities gone wrong. This story comes out of Bowling Green State University in Northwest Ohio, there was a 20-year-old student, his name is Stone Folt, who has died now after a weekend of partying. As I mentioned, this kind of happens all too much and is very familiar. Can you tell us a little bit about Stone, uh, you know, who he was and what happened in this case? What we know is Stone was a sophomore business major at Bowling Green, um, and he had pledged the Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity, which is more commonly known as Pike. Um uh, on a lot of college campuses. And on Thursday night, there was some sort of event at an off-campus house that the fraternity was hosting. What we have been told is that during that event, Stone was either given or forced to drink. We're not sure the exact circumstance, but he consumed a lot of alcohol. He was dropped back off at his apartment and his roommates found him and called 911, but the damage was already done. He was kept on life support and his family donated his organs so that others can have an opportunity to live their life in his honor, is what the family has said. We know Stone graduated from high school in Delaware County, which is just a little bit north and west of Columbus. 
the capital of Ohio. He was a multi-sport athlete in high school. Everything we've heard, you know, he was well-loved. He was somebody that people just got along with, kind of the person that people gravitated towards from everything we've been told. On the other side of things, do we know what happened? I guess his people at the fraternity transported her back to his apartment. I mean, was he in a passed out state at that point? Was he still up and walking? Do we know anything about that? We don't know at that point what his intoxication level was. We know he got dropped off and then his roommates found him. We don't know if his roommates found him inside or outside. We don't know what if he was able to you know, get into the apartment on his own. We don't really know any of that. There is an investigation ongoing that hopefully some of those details will kind of come out as we go. But like you said, um, there was a lot of alcohol that was alleged to have been consumed by him. And the toxicology results from an autopsy will determine what his alcohol level was. But that's going to take weeks to know officially. What has been the stance and actions taken by the fraternity? As you mentioned, uh, Pike is very well known. They have 200 chapters at colleges and universities across the country. So what have they done in response to this? The National and International Pike Organization has taken the step of suspending the fraternity from the organization itself. They've told the fraternity you need to cooperate with all the investigation. Now, Bowling Green University has also taken steps. They no longer recognize the fraternity as a student organization. They've suspended the fraternity. They're doing their own investigation into what was going on that night concurrent with the police investigation into potential criminal penalties. So they've taken some swift action. We know that there are some planned protests at Bowling Green tomorrow. Some students are planning to protest what they say is a trend among Greek life there. And I think a trend we're seeing among Greek life across the country. When things like this happen, there's always usually seems to be some type of action taken by lawmakers. What have lawmakers said about this so far? Because my understanding was that there was some type of bill designed to increase criminal penalties for hazing, but that stalled recently in the Ohio Senate. Unfortunately, in Ohio, we had an incident somewhat similar to what happened with Stone Foltz uh, a few years ago. An 18-year-old gentleman by the name of Colin Wyatt was at Ohio University and died from intoxication from whippets, nitrous oxide. That was determined to be the result of hazing at a fraternity, not Pike, a different fraternity. But the lawmakers had introduced what they called Collins Law to increase those penalties. And it did stall out in the Ohio legislature last year. Essentially, time ran out. A new General Assembly, which is what we call our legislature here, was to be sworn in in January, and they couldn't get the bill advanced far enough by the end of 2020. So they basically have to start over again with the new process with the new legislature. We've also heard that there is going to be new legislation introduced potentially as early as tomorrow. We anticipate it being sometime this week that's going to essentially be a new iteration of Collins Law focused specifically on hazing. Collins Law had also talked about bullying in primary and secondary schools, and that will not be in this new iteration from what we've been told so far. Bethany Bruner, reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.